Our text today is Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28, and a message entitled, Victory in the Spiritual Battle. One of the advantages and challenges of preaching through sections of Scripture and books of the Bible is that you sometimes come to difficult passages uh, that stretch your thinking and uh, help you go a little bit further in your spiritual maturity and your understanding of the Bible. And I think this is certainly one of those challenging passages. But I think when we arrive at uh, the end of the message today, uh, the primary points will be abundantly clear and will help us understand what's taking place in the stories that are before us. There was an article that was written last year by Michelle Chen entitled, One in Five Children Live in a War Zone, and that number has only increased in the past few years. In that article, she talks about the difficulties of children and families who are living in physical war zones that are suffering both the direct consequences of the circumstance they're in as well as indirect consequences. And governments and humanitarian aid groups and extended family can try to relieve some of those problems and provide for the basics of life, <clears throat> but it can be very difficult uh, to do so. It has to be very frightening to live in that type of setting. And I want to draw a parallel with that because the reality is we all are living in a spiritual war zone. We're all living in the midst of the battle uh, between good and evil, between light and darkness. And whether it's at home or work or school or in the public realm in the community, there's this spiritual battle that is raging around us and at stake are the souls of people. Eternity is at hand. The Bible says in John 10 and verse 10, Jesus is speaking and he says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The reality is we have a spiritual enemy, and this spiritual enemy wants to steal your joy, wreck your family, bring chaos to your relationships, and take your life from you if he can. This spiritual war is universal. You cannot ignore it. And even though Jesus has ultimately won the victory through the cross and the resurrection, even now we're experiencing the outworking of that victory. 1 John 3 and verse 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now when we consider Luke's gospel, he presents to us the miracles of Jesus, which corroborate the character and the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who has been sent to deliver us from our sins. And when we look at the Scripture, considering broader sections of Scripture helps us in order to put into context the subject that we're trying to understand. 
So the broader context of what we're going to look at today is Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through verse 54. Basically what's happening in this section of scripture is that the conflict is growing between the authority of Jesus and those who are opposed to him who said that they had religious authority. And instead of approaching Jesus with faith, what these people in opposition did is they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, and they challenged him by demanding a sign from heaven. Now, in part, I think, they reissued the third temptation that was put before Jesus at the outset of his public ministry, to do something that was dramatic, to give a grand sign, to fling himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, and in fact, test God in doing so. And Jesus rebuked their request, and in turn, teaches us something about who he is and what he's done. And what I want you to understand today is that Jesus Christ cannot be ignored. There's no such thing as neutral when it comes to Jesus. You're either following him and you're on his side, or you are opposed to him and you are on the enemy's side. We begin reading in Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. This is what the word of God says. And he, Jesus, was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none, he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Verse 27, and it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, more than that, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
first we find that there is an accusation against Jesus in the spiritual battle. There's an accusation against Jesus in the spiritual battle. The focus is verse 14 through verse 16. Back in Luke chapter 8, we also encountered a demon-possessed man, which brought us face-to-face with the idea of the supernatural. When we speak of the supernatural in faith, and it's applied to our worldview, we understand that that which is supernatural is something that is beyond the natural order, that operates beyond or outside of the known physical laws of the universe. God created the physical realm. God made the natural realm. And then he acts as the supernatural agent who intervenes in the natural realm to impact it. And because there is a higher authority, because we believe by faith in the God of the Bible, we have an existential, spiritual, and ultimate purpose in order to glorify and to serve God. If there is no such thing as something that is supernatural, then there is no such thing as Christianity. The Bible itself is uncompromisingly supernatural. There is a God who has created nature. There is a God who controls nature. And there is a God who can act as he pleases within nature so that we would not think that something supernatural would be unusual because it comes by the power of God. Now, as a bit of a review, according to the Bible, angels were spiritual beings created by God to worship and serve God, and they were present at the creation of the world. There was a particularly anointed angel named Lucifer who was created by God, but yet his heart became proud. And because of his proud heart, he became corrupted and rebelled against God. He was cast out of heaven with fully a third of the angels. We don't know how many a third are. The scripture doesn't tell us, but they were cast down from heaven. Demons are the fallen angels who chose to rebel with Lucifer against God. Some of them are currently locked in darkness and bound in chains, according to the scripture, while others are free to roam the earth as they follow their leader, Satan, and oppose God and hinder his people. As spirit beings, demons have the ability to take possession of a physical body that is not indwelt by the Spirit of God and control that person. And as evil spirits, unclean spirits, lying spirits, and angels of Satan, their chief goal is to oppose God, to oppose the people of God, and to oppose the work of God. Now, the scripture makes it clear that Christ has disarmed these powers and authorities, and he has made a public spectacle of them at the cross. He has triumphed over them, and they await their final destination in hell, along with all who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he encountered many demons. These demons knew who he was, and they feared him because they knew his identity and his power. In the verses before us today, a demon caused a man to be mute, meaning that he was unable to speak. In a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, it indicates that the man was not only mute, but he was also 
blind. And when we come to a circumstance like this, perhaps because we don't see around us spiritually, evidently, as many of these circumstances as were evident in the Bible, we can sometimes be lulled into the sense of thinking that somehow evil is not as pervasive now as it was then. I think that is not an accurate assessment based on the heinous things that we see in the world and also based on the ideologies that oppose God and oppose his word that are parading as angels of light when in fact they're from the realm of darkness. J.C. Ryle said many years ago, do we suppose because bodily possession by Satan is not so glaringly manifest as it once was that the great enemy is less active in doing mischief than he used to be? And Ryle said, if we think so, we have much to learn. See, one of the mistakes we can make is thinking that uh, the effect of evil is not as extreme. We can look at someone who is decent by the world standards, who might be law-abiding, but yet who is operating under the domain of Satan. There is not a neutral zone between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. He is a deceiver. And he parades as an angel of light. He appears to be something that he is not. And in doing so, he cunningly deceives people. Now, in spite of the obvious power of Jesus, his opponents credited what he did or accused him of casting out demons by Satan's power. Some of them said specifically here, he cast out demons by Beelzebub the ruler of demons. So the charge was that Jesus Christ himself was possessed by evil. Beelzebub was a popular name for the prince of demons. The origin of the name is not completely clear, but it probably went back to Baal worship, meaning the Lord of the temple. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the king of Israel was injured and he wanted to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, as to whether or not he would recover. This was likely a derisive Hebrew phrase that literally meant Lord of the Flies. At any rate, Luke was not concerned about the origin of the word. He's concerned with what's happening to Jesus as he's being accused by these other people. And verse 16 says also that others testing him sought a sign from heaven. Now, it was an insincere request, and Luke links them with the former group who were also testing Jesus. And ironically, they didn't see an exorcism as sufficient evidence. They had proof before their very eyes of the person and the work of Jesus, and yet it was not enough. But isn't that the nature of unbelief? Doesn't unbelief love to undermine clear evidence of God's love and God's power? Doesn't unbelief deny the obvious because of the blindness of the heart? Jesus faced an accusation in the spiritual battle. Then I want you to note that there is the authority of Jesus in the spiritual battle. Our focus now turns to verses 17 through 19. Jesus answered the accusation by pointing out that if a kingdom or a house is divided against itself, it will fall. 
It's this very practical point. No kingdom, house, army, team, movement can stand if, in fact, there is an internal battle against itself. If Satan is divided against himself, then the kingdom would not stand. And there are these analogies here of war. The meaning might be of uh, a household attacking uh, within itself in a time of civil strife uh, and there being conflict and division within it. And Jesus is making a simple point that it would be ridiculous if, in fact, he was controlled by the power of Beelzebub to cast out demons because that would mean that he was in league with the one he was casting out, and that would just be ridiculous. Now, Luke alone records at least 10 instances of healings. And among those healings that Jesus performed, four of them are explicitly exorcisms. One of them was not just an individual exorcism, but it was a broad exorcism of spirits that were in people within a crowd. Listen to what Luke chapter 4 and verse 40 and 41 says. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, laying his hands on each one of them. He healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus has the power to cast out demons and Jesus is of the kingdom of light, of the kingdom of God as the very Son of God. Now, Jesus also takes up here, kind of as a secondary matter, the issue of Jewish exorcists. And there was these people that would, as their practice, use potions and incantations and magical formulas and so forth and attempt to cast out demons. And Jesus said, you didn't accuse them of this. Uh, whether or not Jesus was actually authenticating what they were doing or just making the point that they were uh, giving a good effort in their attempt to do so. And he said, you didn't accuse them of doing that, but yet here you have accused me of being empowered by Satan. And they, he, they singled him out in what they were saying to him. But now verse 20, this is very important. Jesus says in verse 20, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, we're going to come back to this phrase in just a moment. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's the meaning of the finger of God? Now, obviously, it's power. It's authority. It's ability to do what only God can do. The allusion to the finger of God is similar to the scriptural account of Moses when he was leading the people of God. Uh, and they were looking toward their exit from Egypt when they found themselves there in slavery for all of those years. What did God do in order to deliver them? He enacted his supernatural power in multiple events and displays of his power, specifically through the plagues. Pharaoh's magicians warned him, Exodus 8 and verse 19, this is the finger of God. See, even the evil ones knew 
even the magicians of the Pharaoh, even those who represented the kingdom of darkness, they said to the man who was leading their nation when the power of God was coming against them and Moses was preparing them to exit from Egypt, they said, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And here Jesus in Luke chapter 11 refers to that same authority and power to bring to conclusion what he was about to do. And this was the power of God at work. It was a precursor to what would be on display in the cross and the resurrection. And it was evidence of who Jesus was in their midst. I love the way David Gooding put it. He, he wrote, God's finger was touching them. God was speaking to them. What they had just witnessed was a direct, unambiguous demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Now they must make life's ultimate judgment. And they were at the point of making a decision which once deliberately made would be irreversible and would make deliverance forever impossible. Reject the Holy Spirit, call ultimate good evil, call truth himself a lie, and God himself has no further evidence left. He has nothing more to say except judgment. You see, they were tottering on the edge of an eternal judgment. But the merciful Jesus would not let them go without explaining to them exactly what they were doing. Even though they thought they had reason on their side, he was going to show them the consequences of rejecting him. Now let's look for a moment at verse 21 and 22. The picture now focuses on a well-armed house. Within this well-armed house is a strong man. The strong man is concerned with uh, protecting his house and maintaining security. The scripture indicates that his possessions are safe until a stronger man attacks. Now, what is this symbolic of? The strong man is symbolic of Satan. His possessions are people who are within his domain. The stronger man who attacks is Jesus who overcomes. And as Paul stated it in Colossians 2 and verse 15, Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and has triumphed over them. What no man could do, Jesus was capable of doing. And the very fact that Jesus delivered the mute man from Satan's clutches was evidence that he was not on Satan's side. And Jesus defeated Satan in order to deliver the man, and he is the one who has secured the victory for us. So you understand that only the power of Jesus is able to deliver a soul from the domain of Satan and bring them into the family of God. Only the power of Jesus is capable of delivering someone from darkness unto light. Only the power of Jesus is able to rescue somebody from the clutches of hell and deliver them to a permanent home in heaven. It's only Jesus. So what appears at first like a simple spiritual illustration is in fact telling us something far greater about who Jesus is and what he's done. And that brings me 
to the final point that I think draws all of this together in that there is a need for allegiance to Jesus in the spiritual battle. There's a need for allegiance to Jesus in the spiritual battle. Note verses 23 through 26. I would state it this way. There is no middle ground in the spiritual battle. Or to put it another way, you're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. The idea that you can be neutral is a deception. If we protest and say that we are neutral, that we're not for Jesus or against Jesus, then in fact, that is a declaration of unbelief. Because every single person on the face of the planet is either for Jesus or against Jesus. So what Jesus does now is he relates a serious story. He speaks about an unclean spirit that possessed a man. And when this unclean spirit uh, possessed a man, he left the man as the story goes. It's unclear if he left in search of a better place or he was exercised against his will. But in any event, uh, its journey was through dry, desolate places seeking rest and in fact finding no rest. So what does he do? He returns back to the house or the person from which he came. Now, meanwhile, the life of the former host has been swept clean, and the returning demon brings with him seven other demons who have come to feed on this lost man's soul. And what is the conclusion of Jesus? The last state of the man is worse than the first. He's not just inhabited by an evil spirit, but now he has a host of evil spirits. And I think the point is clear. Reformation of yourself outwardly in your life without transformation by the power of God's Spirit, without being born again, is a dead end. I think temporary change is not enough. All of the self-help techniques in the world are going to be inadequate. Anyone who purges evil from around them, but yet is not transformed themselves by the power of God, is going to be in deep trouble. You understand why this is one of the great shortcomings of a lot of religion in the world, because a lot of religion in the world is concerned about outward actions and the reformation of the person, the rehabilitation of the person, without the transformation of the person through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a significant difference. And this is why it's so important that we understand what it means to be saved. You see, the way that we come to faith in Christ is to understand who He is and what He's done on our behalf. It's understanding that we're a sinful people, that we're in need of God's forgiveness. It's understanding that Christ paid the penalty for our sins at the cross. It's understanding that the only way to be saved is by grace through faith, that it is all of God. It is a gift of God. It is of God's grace and mercy in our lives. And when we trust in Him, our lives are forever changed. And we're now on the side of Jesus. But more importantly, Jesus 
is with us and indwelling us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I ask you this question, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you with the light or are you with the darkness? Are you with God or are you with the enemy? Whose side are you on? Now note this in verse 27 and 28, and I'm going to bring this toward a close. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, the way that we demonstrate that we're on Jesus' side is to hear the word of God and do it. It's not the way that we gain salvation. It's evidence of the fact that we have salvation. So what's taking place here? Well, as Jesus is speaking, a woman in the crowd speaks up and she shouts, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Can you imagine being in that crowd in that moment? Jesus has now performed an exorcism. The, the demon has come out. He's been accused of performing that exorcism by Beelzebub. Jesus sets them straight of how ridiculous that would be because it would be a house divided if he was on the side of Satan trying to cast out a demon by the power of Satan. It just wouldn't make any sense at all. He's confirming to them his identity. He tells another story to emphasize what he's talking about, about the importance of a life of change. And there's this woman in the crowd, and she looks, and she's like, that's amazing. i got to say something. So what does she say? She raises her voice, and she says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And of course, that was true. Mary was blessed by God to be the mother of Jesus. Jesus does not deny the importance of his earthly mother, but he makes the point more than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus is making this point that he makes several times through his public ministry. Natural family ties are important. They're valuable. They're a blessing to us. But even more important is the point of believing in God by faith, hearing his word, and doing it. So to state it another way, saving faith is obedient faith. Your obedience reveals your faith. Your faith produces your obedience. Jesus' authority over the supernatural shows that he is both Savior and Lord. Have you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has eternal power, as the Son of God? Do you know him? Are you on his side? And is he on your side? If you do, are you living like it? Is there evidence in your life because you're obeying the word of God. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And we're going to come toward our closing song. But I want you to reflect just for a moment on these accounts that we have just read in Luke's gospel. And I want you to just gaze for a moment 
on the power and the glory of Jesus that is on display. If your faith and your trust is in him, I want you to think about the one in whom you are believing. And just take a moment to thank him for who he is and for what he's done. For his ultimate power that was revealed at the cross and then in his resurrection. We've got much to be thankful for. I wonder, would you just ask the Lord to help you be obedient in your life? So that your faith is evident by the way you live. We're going to have the opportunity coming up in the next week or so uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper and also have baptism should we have anyone who desires to follow through in obedience to Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, have you ever been baptized as a public profession of your faith? Are you unashamed of whose side you're on? Maybe this morning you need to say, as the service is over and we have opportunity to talk with you, I need to make my faith public. I believe in Jesus, but I've never been baptized, but I want to be. We invite you to come after we sing, and I'll talk with you and pray with you and answer any questions you might have. But most of all, if you need Christ, today would be a good day to trust him. And to be sure that you're on the right side of the kingdom. Father, thank you for the blessing of us being able to gather here today. It's a blessing always to be with your people. We're grateful for your word. It gives us clarity about who Jesus is and about how we can be forgiven and redeemed. I pray that our lives would be testimonies to your faithfulness and your grace. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.